Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this message in our current series. Well, good morning. <laughs> yeah, man, it is great to worship with you, and it is the start of football season. Man, yeah, here we go. Somebody, somebody noticed that uh, the football I had for this was a little bit deflated. Uh, yeah, yeah, you saw that coming. Actually, this, this is a signed football, but it's signed by a quarterback who knows what loyalty looks like, Steve Grogan. That's old school right there, folks. <laughs> uh, Actually, so I was thinking as we got started, uh, some of you who follow football closely and follow our, our beloved Patriots will know that uh, we had an epic quarterback retire this, uh, running back retire this year, James White. So eight years, yeah, this guy's, this guy, those, that's the fans right there. They're like, James who? Eight years. Um, and one of the most prolific running backs we've ever had. In fact, he scored three, he, he won three Super Bowl rings, and he scored three touchdowns in the comeback win against Atlanta. Remember those? Those were good days. Oh, those were the good old days, folks. Back when we used to win games. Oh, man, that hurts. And... So he retired this year, and if you followed it, then you'll know that in his retirement, they were giving all these accolades. He's one of the most loved players of all times. And um, they said, as running back, he had 700 touches. That means they handed him the ball 700 times. And 700 times, very angry, large men came after him. And hit him. And here was the remarkable thing. He never fumbled. Eight years. I mean, I read that statistic and I'm like, zero fumbles in eight years. I'm like, how, how in the world 700 times people hit you with violent intent? And you didn't cough up the ball. Actually, actually, if you, if you listen closely to what they said, they actually slightly qualified it. They said he never lost a fumble. It was remarkable. But on a few occasions, just one or two, he actually did cough up the ball. And his own team recovered it. It's him, another time someone else. That made me feel better. Because, I mean, who can live up to perfection? <laughs> who can live up to perfection? I sort of feel like that this weekend, uh, talking about family. I'm always hesitant to wade into this subject 
Because here's the reality. We all fumble the ball, right? We've all... (laughs) Family is not perfect, but we want it to be. I want my family story to be perfect, and you do too. But it's not. And that's the reality. We fumble the ball. So I thought that we would start. I got to adjust my. Have you all noticed a trend that I adjust this every single week, no matter where they put it? You've all noticed that? I just wanted to get that out of the way. I realized today when I came up, because I had props, that it was going to be harder to do than than normal. Um, We all want it to be just right. And then we deal with reality. Let me let you in on a secret. Normally, when I've done these series, this is the fourth time I've done a series on family, only four times in 30 years. I didn't do the first one until about 10 years ago. There's reasons for that. It terrifies me. Because who of us can stand up and say, hey, do exactly what I do? None of us, right? Because we've all got stories of things that just didn't turn out right. So usually when I do a family series, here's what happens. I'll start off and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of the great stuff. And then about halfway through, people are like, oh, pastor, this is not helping me. Because you don't, I mean, like, I've been through this and we've been through this and this has happened. And oh, that's all nice for you to say, but here is the reality. And so usually by the end of the series, I'm wrapping a message into what do we do with the fallout of all of that stuff. So I thought, here, in this series, let's just get real to start with and let's talk about the fumble. Because here's here's where we should start. We all want the perfect picture. The picture perfect. Like if you're single... You're dreaming about that relationship, likely thinking about what she will be like, what he will be like, what your life together will be. You're scouting, you're watching, you're looking, you're asking, you're exploring, and you're dreaming about picture perfect. And if, if you're married and you've exchanged those vows and committed your life to one another and you've started down the path towards marital bliss, if it's longer than 24 hours, you've discovered, oh my goodness. Who is this person I married? And we're like wrestling through it. And then, oh man, you have a child and a second child and a third child and a fourth child. (laughs) Some of you fifth, sixth, seventh, I don't know. I'm not sure who's got the record around here. And we've got this picture of what family is going to look like when those kids are little and we're raising them. We're going to pour everything into them. They're going to become this. And we've got a dream. And we've, we've painted a, a perfect picture. Then your kids go off. And maybe you're a, you're a parent of adult kids. You're an empty nester. I'm new to this, folks. And you're figuring out what adult-to-adult relationships look like as a parent. And here's what happens. We have these these pictures, this image, this vision. And then we fall in love with the picture. 
And then we try to live up to the picture. And the reality is it's often killing us. Because sometimes the picture that we've painted is distorted. We think it's our dream and our vision and it's the, it's the perfect picture, but it's gotten distorted and twisted in ways that it's killing us. That's where I want to start. In fact, I want to start over, and if you've got your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 9, because there's a, there's a short story here, and I just want to read a portion of it, where there's a mom and a dad. And I want you to read this story from the perspective of mom and dad. There are other characters, and normally we read it from their perspective. But mom and dad, um, it doesn't tell us a lot about it, but we know what it's like. They, they probably met, and maybe their parents and the culture of the day arranged the marriage, and they fell in love, and they started dreaming about what life would be like and where they would live and how many kids they would have. And in the culture, they were, they were praying for the boy. That was, that was the culture of the day. And, and then, then she got pregnant. And they had the baby reveal cake. Oh, no, they didn't do that back then. But you get the picture. But it's like, what's it going to be? And they give birth, and it's a boy. And they're so excited. Like, life is full of dreams, of pictures of what it's going to look like. And then they realize something's wrong. Not everything's right with him. After a little bit, they realize that their the little boy, their dream, he's blind. And the picture changes. What would people say? You see, in their culture, people assumed that if something like that happened, it was your fault. What would people say? And what are they going to think? And how are we going to live? And where are we going to fit in? And... Are we going to have any friends? Are we going to be able to go to the same place? And, and their, their, their picture perfect starts to fall apart. Let me just read to you a bit of, of this story. And you can see the tensions. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who'd been born blind from birth. And it's his disciples, these guys, right? Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins? Is it sort of like karma? Or his parents' sins? Huh. But, but they're, they're repeating what everybody else was saying. And it wouldn't have surprised the parents. This is what people had been whispering for years. And Jesus, it's, it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Jesus would go on in the next verses to heal him, but, but Jesus' critics in the community, the religious leaders, they were not happy. Uh, you know, anything that would make Jesus look good wasn't good in their eyes. And so they go after the parents. 
And, and I want to pick it up there in verse 20. His parents replied. The, the critics come after him. Hey, tell us what happened. Did Jesus, did Jesus heal? And they're, they're, you, you, well, listen, watch. His parents replied, we know this is our son, and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. That's his painting, his story, his picture. It's not ours. Don't, don't bring that into our story. His parents said this, verse 22, because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. Ah, you see, that was that the synagogue was their picture. That was their their picture perfect. We're gonna that, that was the center of social life. That was where you fit in and where you you mattered and where you found your significance and your security. And if if the picture ruins that, oh so here they are, they're, they're, they're backpedaling. You see, you see how the picture gets distorted? See, often the picture, the picture that we've painted, we, we think it's an original and we fall in love with it, but often the, the picture has been, it's been distorted by, well, it's been distorted by the voices of people. We, we, we need the applause and the approval of everyone around us. We, we want to fit in. We want to be popular. We want our kids to fit in. We want our kids to be popular. And we will do anything and pay anything to make it so. Because of the applause, the approval of people. The voices of people. It's like we're painting a painting we thought was original and we're painting by number and somebody else is saying, no, no, that box is blue and that one's red and that one's green. This is what the picture looks like. The voices of people. But there's another one. It's the pain of, uh, of the past. Sometimes it's the pain of our parents, right? We, we're... Often, our, our parenting strategy is, it comes down to this. I'm going to avoid all the mistakes my parents made. <laughs> you don't have to say amen. That was nervous laughter there. I was like, <laughs> my parents are here, Pastor. I get it. My parents are watching. Right? We're going to avoid all the mistakes our parents made. And guess what? We're making new ones all our own. <laughs> and our kids are going to repeat the cycle. I, I bet this. I bet there's, I'll bet almost, nah, I'll bet every one of you. The over-under is everyone. Has something they do because their parents did it and something you don't do because your parents did it. You see, the, the pain of the past, and I'll go one step further. I'll bet there's things in your approach to, to painting the story of your family that you do just because of the pain of your past, something you've done, something you've walked through, and you're like, my kids are never 
going to have to go through that. You see, all I'm beginning with is this. Sometimes we have to step back and ask ourselves a question. Where did that picture come from? Like, who said that's what my picture should look like? Where did the picture come from? (laughs) Uh, Our family has a tradition. Many of you have been in on it. We send out a Christmas card every year, kind of part of my function and role as pastor at Cape Cod Church. And over the years, the mailing list has grown, as you might imagine. Last year, it was 2,000 homes. So the pressure is on to get a good picture, and I'm just going to give you an inside scoop. Every year, right after Thanksgiving, like the day after, the scramble is on to get our family photo taken. It's awesome. It is such a beautiful time of bonding for our family. (laughs) I'm the driving force in this, and driving is the right word. You only got to smile for 30 seconds, kids. 30 seconds. And every year we're coming up with a new idea. Now the kids are getting older and, you know, we're navigating through all of that. And we've been doing this for, for years. So I thought I'd, I'd bring, actually, a couple years ago, we, this, this, this picture is uh, from nine, this will be nine Christmases ago. And, uh, and some friends actually turned it into a, uh, a photo for it. We've actually got this hanging at our house. Yeah. It's a beautiful photo, right? Yeah. A beautiful family. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see, I can leave that right up there. My perfect family. Yeah, look at us. We're just, we're smiling. My father was actually in the basement when he took this picture. Look at us. Little Christmas lights. Cody's cute. He got by the cute age real quick. Oh. This hangs, actually, right by our, our front door. Yeah, you know, I was looking at it the other day, getting ready for this, and I looked at that picture, and I thought, why are we laying on the floor? <laughs> I mean, folks, we're laying on the floor. I mean, I know there's lights in front of us, and there's a, a fake fireplace in back of us, but we're laying on the floor. Why are we lying on the floor? And I looked at that, and I'm like, I don't, I don't actually know. Like, where did that come from? When did laying on the floor become popular? I mean, I don't know what it's supposed to look like. I mean, do happy families lay on the floor? Like, we were all wrestling around, having a grand old time like the Cleaver family or the Waltons or someone, and we snapped a picture in mid-euphoria on the floor. (laughs) I have no idea why we're on the floor. (laughs) I I think, if I remember right, I think... I think it was probably Pinterest, right? There was like a picture, somebody else. There was, a, there was a season about 10 years ago where people took these kind of pictures on the floor and, and I saw one and I'm like, that's awesome. And the trend begins. 
I may be restarting a trend here. Who knows? You know, this Christmas, there's your idea. Go right back to the floor. Or not, because it's weird. It's, we're on the floor. What I'm saying is, I'll leave that for you to enjoy, is that sometimes when we step back from the picture and we begin to ask ourselves, where did this picture come from? We'll discover that there are pieces of the picture that are, are, are distorted by the voices of what others said it should be and the pain of my past. That doesn't do anything to help you walk through the valley of, of a picture that's been torn and is painful. We're going to go there in a minute. But I, I just want to begin by encouraging you to step back and to look at that picture and to ask some questions about it. Are you sure that's the picture? Or has the picture been painted by the voices of others or the pain of the past? But what do you do when the picture is, is torn? What do you do when the picture is torn? What do you do when your deal is less than ideal? <laughs> because that's the reality for most of us all of us the deal is less than ideal there are portions of the story that are are painful so i want to i want to offer this morning uh, three uh, three steps and I, I don't know that they're i don't know that they they go in order but i do think that there's some some process to them and and you'll see that from the first to the second to the last and and you may find that the first is a place to begin and it leads you into the second and it allows you to get to the third but by all means start anywhere but when you're walking through this season and you're trying to figure out how do we celebrate this gift of family when the picture is not exactly what we'd asked for so here's the first of those steps it begins when we unlock false beliefs Christian counselor friend of mine, Brian Neal, used this term, and I loved it. Unlocking false beliefs. This is where you ask questions like, why am I on the floor? This is where we start to dig into what we are feeling, and that's why it happens best in conversation. So let me tell you the truth. You can have it, this, this whole unlocking of false beliefs through the process of conversation can happen with you talking to yourself, but it's not best. Where it's best is when you have it in conversation 
conversation with another. Sometimes it begins with a a husband and wife or a child and a parent or a, a trusted friend. Ideally, someone who shares your perspective of faith because what happens is when you have that conversation and you start to ask the questions like, why are we lying on the floor? You begin in that process to start to unlock the false beliefs that have taken up residence in your life. And, and, and here, is a, here is a great question you can begin with. Jesus offers this question to his disciples in Mark chapter 4. And it's very simple. This is where Jesus is on the sea with his disciples and they are scared to death. And Jesus comes to him, calms the storm, and he says this to him: Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? <laughs> they thought they were going to die. That's why, they, why are you afraid? Why? This is a powerful question. Why are you afraid? So mom, dad, you're walking through that valley with a son or a daughter. I'm just talking about having that conversation and asking yourself like, why am I afraid? Why am I afraid? Why am I afraid? Now, here's what's going to happen. You're going to start to unwind that. And as you unwind it, you're going you're to discover that, that a whole bunch of the things that come out of your mouth fall into one of three buckets. One, things I can't control. You're just going to start talking. You're going to be, I'm afraid of this, this. And it's like stuff. You have z- like zero, zero. There's nothing you can do about it. No control. Second, you're going to discover stuff that's, I don't know how to say this, no big deal. Have you ever done that? You ever been talking to somebody that's like, what's wrong? And you're like, oh, I don't know. And you start saying it. And as soon as you say it, you know how ridiculous it sounds. I don't know, my kid left their lunch at home again. I can't believe it. They're going to lose in life. Right? We're just like... And sometimes we just say, we, we, we come out and we say it, and we realize, ah, it's, 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 not, it's, it's not a big deal. But we don't realize that until we say it. And then the third bucket is, catastrophizing. I love that word. I just wanted to fit it into a message, catastrophizing. A friend, uh, Brian, who was talking with me about this point, used this term, and I'm like, explain that to me. You know what catastrophizing is. That's when you take one thing, and you say, this happened, and because this happened, this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then the world's going to explode, and I'm going to die. And we've taken this one thing and we've like created an entire narrative out of the one thing and we've catastrophized it. And, and all I'm saying is that the, the first step is often to unlock these false beliefs and, and Jesus' question is such a powerful one. What are you afraid of? I'm not saying that there's nothing to be afraid of. I'm just saying speak it out loud and ideally speak it out loud to someone you trust who also trusts Jesus. 
Because when you do, you will start to unlock false beliefs. This is unsatisfying for some of you right now because you're like, oh, Ben. This is so deep for me. And I think that's what brings the second point. My friend, Christian counselor here at the church, Dr. Jim uh, Manganella shared this with me and we were talking, I said, we've got to include that. It's grieving. See, sometimes once you've unlocked a false belief, you, it enables you to go to this next stage, this next phase of, of, of grieving, of of wrestling your pain and your sorrow, your sadness to the ground and and releasing it. Let me read to you this passage from Philippians where where Paul kind of speaks to this. I mean, here's what he says. He says, "I, I don't mean, this is Philippians chapter three and we're starting in verse 12. He says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection in other words, he says, I haven't. I, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. And then he says this, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I just love that phrase, forgetting the past looking forward to what lies ahead. See, grieving is is this process of of releasing the past. My friend, Dr. Jim, wrote, and he said this, and I thought it was so good, I just wanted wanted to share it with you. He He said, sometimes out of the ashes of grief, comes a new ideal. Often unimaginably good. I love that. Can I, can I give you three phrases that will help you prompt grief or at least process it? They're easy. They all start with I wish. You, you can begin this process with, here's a phrase, I wish. And then fill in, I wish, I wish this had happened. I wish I hadn't been born into that. I wish this person hadn't died. I wish that hadn't happened. I wish. You see, this, this begins to allow for things that are completely out of your control. Here's the second. It starts the same way. I wish. But this time it says, I wish I. Because some grieving is intensely personal. I wish I had done that. I wish I hadn't done that. I mean, who 
among us doesn't have an I wish I. You know what this does? It allows for God's grace into your life. Just that beginning of that process, God, I wish I hadn't. I wish I had. And it allows for you to be a recipient of God's grace. It recognizes that God's grace in my life is not dependent on my goodness in the past. I wish, I wish I hadn't. I wish I had. God, thank you for your grace. And the third is, I wish they. I wish they had done this. I wish they wouldn't do that. You see, when you begin to walk down this path, you're separating yourself from their actions. You're allowing them to be human and accountable and at fault, and you're opening the door to the same grace in their life that you've just received. Because out of the ashes of grief, comes a new ideal, sometimes unimaginably good. That's why I like the last thing. Make room for new pictures. <laughs> Make room for new pictures. Or get comfortable with the old picture. Here's the truth, I have a place on my wall I'm taking this home after church. Brittany and bangs. Cody like a little boy. Me forcing everybody to lay on the floor. <laughs> it's a beautiful picture. We took a new picture the next year, and the next year, and the next year. And we'll take another picture this year. None of them perfect. Verse 12, I want to read it to you in a version I read out of often. It's the NLT, but it was the one that was first published in 96. And I don't often do this, but I loved the way it put verse 12. So I wanted to read it to you. Here's how Paul says this. It just makes it a little bit more clear, the verse I just read. He says, I don't mean to say I've already achieved these things or that I've already achieved perfection. But I keep working toward that day when I will finally be all that Christ Jesus saved me for and wants for me. All that Christ Jesus saved me for and wants me to be. I keep working. Why? Because he's not done. He's painting a beautiful picture and he's not done. I just want to say this to you. If you're here and you find yourself just right in the valley and the picture hasn't turned out like you hoped it would turn out, 
The marriage ended and you're not sure what's next. Your adult kids that you poured your life into aren't talking to you. Your child is, is struggling and it doesn't seem like there's a great story to tell. You're single and you're wondering, am I ever going to have any of this and do I need to skip the next month of church? Years ago, and some of you know the backstory, our family went through a deep valley and no one knew about it. Child was struggling. And the most crystal clear thing I remember out of that season, and the word that it enabled us to offer others, is simply this God has a beautiful, beautiful future for you and your child. He's not done. He's not done. Would you bow with me? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I just want to finish in the moment to pray for you. So, listen, if you're here, man, you're just in one of those seasons where the picture looks exactly like you thought it would, and it is awesome, man. Celebrate those moments. Soak it up. It's real. It's true. It's God's blessing. But maybe take a moment to pray for a friend who's not quite there. And that's what I want to do. I want to pray for you who find yourself in the valley and the picture you had painted is torn. God's not done. His plan for you is beautiful. Father, help us. Help every single person, every married couple, every mom or dad, every empty nester, every grandparent. Help us, Father, to unlock these false beliefs. And Father, those who are grieving, allow us to grieve authentically and deeply. To put what's past, past. And Father, fill us. Just fill that one who came here today with no hope. Give them a glimmer, a spark of what you're able to do. Remind them in their deepest soul that you are not done. That you are painting a beautiful picture. Remind us of it. Send us out with it. 
Let us begin to celebrate that picture even now. We pray together as a church family and we pray for one another, Father. We pray for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.